Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. One of the things I love about biblical authors is that there's just no fluff. (laughs) I mean, this is his greeting. It's enough for five hours. It's just, why do you talk like that? You know, most most preachers, we feel like we do fluff for five minutes so that people will will feel warm and fuzzy. And and then we we try to do a little bit of, of content. This is no, this just, Election, (laughs) exile, foreknowledge, sanctification, blood, grace, peace. (laughs) Okay, here we go. I love it. It's just my kind of guy. So let's, let's do something with it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter's apostleship and authority. Here's Peter being commissioned. This is Mark 3. And he went up on the mountain and called to him. This is Jesus. Called to him those who were, whom he desired. They came to him, and he appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12 Simon, whom he gave the name Peter. So there's the origin of Peter's apostleship. So don't confuse disciple and apostle. Disciple means follower of Jesus. Apostle is one of the twelve whom he gave special authority to be his authoritative representatives who would then write Scripture and be the foundation of the church. And here is an expression of Paul's apostleship, just so you can see how it gets fleshed out in one of them. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9.1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus the Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? One of the criteria for being an apostle was that they had to see the risen Christ. You see that in Acts chapter 1 when they had to replace Judas. And Paul is saying, I did on the Damascus road. He called me like one born out of season and did a special appearance for me on the Damascus road. Am I not an apostle? And this right here, are you not my workmanship? The sign of an apostle was not just that he had this astonishing relationship to the risen Christ as his authoritative spokesman, but that when he worked, amazing fruit happened. There were signs of an apostle, and you are my sign, he said. And then here is the way apostles can talk, which is unbelievable in our pluralistic situation. If anyone thinks... This is Paul again. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, and and Paul believed in the gift of prophecy and spirituality, 
He wasn't debunking either of those. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. That's the way apostles talk. Apostles are the last court of appeal in authority in the New Testament time. If you come along and say you have a prophecy, I'm fine with that. It just better not disagree with anything I say. Wow. And, and of course, you have to decide as you read. This is one of the reasons I'm a Christian. Just a little personal testimony about what sustains and, and underground, undergirds my faith. There's Jesus and then there's Paul. Those are the two big reasons I'm a Christian. Uh, liar, lunatic, Lord, C.S. Lewis, works for me. The way Jesus talks is off the charts lunacy or lying or he's God. I can't make him a lunatic. I can't make him a liar as I see the four gospels spread out. Therefore, I'm knocked over by Jesus. The same thing works for Paul for me. Liar, lunatic, I'm thinking of a faithful apostle, not, not a very good L. But you read Paul talking like this, you say, this man has an ego problem. <laughs> or Jesus showed up and spoke to him. I mean, if Jesus showed up and spoke to you, and said, you're my authoritative spokesman from here on out among the Gentiles, you'd speak with a certain measure of authority. And he did. So then when you read Romans and Galatians and 1 Corinthians, you have to decide in the 21st century, is there enough here to get a feel that this man is crazy or that he's a charlatan? And my answer is, yes, there is enough there. And he's not. I believe him. I'll die for him. I'll die for him. I'll die for Jesus. Their words are true. That's, that's the way my mind works when it comes to authority. So, Peter's apostleship, a claim to be speaking on behalf of the risen Christ with authority. Let's go back to these words here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect exiles. We'll come back to that in a minute of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. What's that? This is the Mediterranean Sea, the blue part, Black Sea. This is Turkey today, Turkey. And here's Pontus. I covered it up almost right there. Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia, Asia. It's, he's going in, he's going in uh, clockwise, it looks like, in naming. These are Roman provinces in the first century. Um, we don't know where Peter traveled. Um, the New Testament just says he is, tra he is a traveler because Paul one time said, couldn't I have a wife? to carry around like Peter? 
So we know he's married and he's, he's lugging his wife around, <laughs> putting her at risk, which Paul wouldn't do. You've got two options, married or not married. And, and uh, you, you better marry the right person if you want to risk for Jesus. And evidently he did. I, I don't know anything about that marriage, but it ended, I mean, his life ended, who knows, maybe she was right beside him. So that's where, he's, he's here in Rome, right there, and it's the year or two before the great conflagration, evidently. He can see it coming, and he's, he's getting these reports, probably, that things are heating up over here, and he's writing to all those, those churches over there. Okay, back to verse 2, or 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Elect exiles. What does that refer to? Exiles. Oh, before we do, before we stir in, uh, get, get rid of that. Before we stir in uh, election, let's just do exiles of the dispersion. What does that mean? You all know probably that dispersion is, uh, the diaspora is the, is the word, refers to Jews who were scattered outside Palestine. And is that the meaning here? Exile, the reason he calls them exiles, I'm asking you, is it because they're Jews scattered outside of Palestine? Here, here I don't think so. And most scholars don't think, most commentators don't think so. And here, here are the kind of arguments. Um, exiles of the dispersion, is it Jews away from Palestine or is it Christians away from heaven? When you read this book, that, that's probably pretty significant. Can you read yourself into the word exile? Because you are a Christian away from heaven or is this the Jews in the first century outside Palestine? So you need to kind of step back and figure out another way to see yourself in this, in this book. Two kinds of argument to say, I think it's the latter. In other words, the one I'm going to argue for is, is this one right there. I think exiles refers not to Jews outside Palestine here, but rather to Christians outside heaven. 1 Peter 2.11, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Beloved, I, this is, a, oh, that was 117, sorry. And this is now 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Now, it sounds to me like there is a moral implication of being a sojourner here. Like in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Like, hmm. How would that work if they were Jews outside Palestine? Would there be a necessary correlation between a, a Jew outside Palestine and a Christian who is a 
got his citizenship in heaven and is planted here on the earth temporarily in an alien and foreign land. That would make more sense of saying the passions of the flesh are out of step with your sojourn condition. Keep going. Our citizenship, this is now, I'm outside First Peter. You've got to be careful when you do this. My, here's another, I could have gone, done this with method. When I think about how to get valid insight into a text, I work in concentric circles. So I want to know what the immediate context shows me, then the rest of the book, then the rest of the writings by the same author, and then the rest of the New Testament. Kind of in, and as you move out, you have to be more careful that you're not reading in meanings here that come from way over there. So what I'm doing here is tenuous, and you need to judge as to whether you think it's appropriate or inappropriate. All I'm doing here is saying, in the New Testament, the idea of Christians being citizens of heaven and exiles here is normal. So, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Or Hebrews 11.13, these all died in faith, this is up through Abraham, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So before there was any Babylonian captivity, that's hundreds of years later, Abraham and Noah and Abel are exiles on the earth. In Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no lasting city, we seek a city that is to come. So that's the first kind of argument, namely that in the New Testament and in Peter, there seems to be a conceptual framework of Christians being refugees, exiles, aliens here, and heaven being where their names are written and where their citizenship is, so that they are always keying off of heaven standards, not earth standards, heaven values, not earth values. Second kind of argument in favor of that. The readers of First Peter seem to be mainly Gentiles. So if they were Jews outside Palestine, why would he write about them like this? Two texts. So this is chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now all that's sticking straight out of the Old Testament. sounds Jewish. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Now. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. Now, I know that's Hosea chapter 2, originally spoken to Jews. However, in Romans 9.25, Paul uses that very verse to argue that the Gentiles are included in the people of God. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. And it seems to me it would be probable that Peter would use it similarly, especially in view of what's coming next. So my argument here is, even though this is taken straight out of the Old Testament, 
you were not a people and now you are God's people is Peter's way of saying, um, I'm treating you as the new Israel because once you were no people, now you are in the Messiah, in Jesus, and I can call you with that familiar language of exiles. But here's the main argument that persuades most people that he's writing to Gentiles. For the time that is past, this is chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time that is past, the, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So it looks like the readers used to be that way. They are surprised now. I mean, they wouldn't be surprised if you were always that way. I mean, if you were always withdrawn from that kind of behavior. But you were once part of it. Now they're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So what, what was your formal lifestyle? You were sensual, given to passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, and virtually everybody who reads this says, that's not the description of a Jew. Jews weren't Christians, but they didn't live like that. The reason Jew, Jew, Judaism was, was popular among many Gentiles, and the Gentiles became God-fearers and joined the synagogues, often was because of their reputation for the law that they kept. It was a, it was a law that kept them out of this kind of trouble. So this sounds like they were Gentiles... Uh, and now they are in the church and withdrawn from that Gentilish way of living. So my conclusion is that those commentators are very probably right and that when it says exiles of the dispersion here in verse 1, it means Christians, people who have come to Christ and now their citizenship is in heaven and their identity on this earth is alien and stranger and sojourner and exile. So you, if you're a Christian, should see yourself here. That's the implication and a very important one. Now we get to this issue of uh, election. So elect exiles, those who are Peter, an apostle, to those who are elect exiles. So he just passes right over. He doesn't pause to teach on election like I'm doing right now. He, he just, just right over it. It's as though election is just so much a part of his thinking that he just throws it in as an adjective to define the the exile status. And my question is, what, what, what does he want us to understand with that word? Now, here's a question. The reason I broke it out like this and put them on different lines is so that you could see, see this. Here's a prepositional phrase, according to, in, for, and this is included in that, so I'm going to circle them like this. 
three prepositional phrases modifying what. So one says, according to, in, for. It's according to foreknowledge of God. It's in the sanctification of the Spirit. It's for obedience to Jesus Christ. What, what are those modifying? So if we, if we were to do sentence diagramming here, what would you connect them to? And virtually everybody connects it to election. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. Elect for obedience to Jesus Christ. If we were in a class that was small, I'd say, do you agree with that? Why? Why not? When you start reading through each of the prepositional phrases and try to understand them as they come, uh, it, it gets a little difficult to make them apply strictly to the word election and not also to the word exile. So what I'm going to commend to you to consider is those three prepositions, one, two, three, those three prepositional phrases modify this taken together. Elect exiles. Sometimes with the emphasis on election, sometimes with the emphasis on exiles. So I, I think what he's saying here is God has chosen you such that you have become exiles. Election doesn't happen in history. Election happens in accord with God's foreknowledge. It happened in eternity, Paul says, before the foundation of the world. So he didn't wait to see whether you were in exile. He chose you, and you are exiles through that election. I'm going I'm to argue. So let's take them one at a time. Elect exiles, chosen exiles. God chose you, and you are in exile, in exile on the earth, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What does that mean? according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And the word knowledge or foreknowledge is, um, I was talking to Marshall who's traveling with me, and we were trying to think of a, an English counterpart to the way the New Testament uses, or the Old Testament uses the word knowledge so differently than we do. And, and we don't have a good counterpart. Let me, let me give you, do I have the, yeah. I've got some, I can give you three or four examples of what I mean. So, I want to know what foreknown means. What is this referring to? Foreknown, according to foreknowledge. Uh, a few verses later, so this is chapter 1, verse 20, 20 verses later. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. Now, so you can see I'm thinking, I'm looking, give me something in the immediate context that will help me know what foreknow means. Well, there it is. It's the only other place in the book where it's used. And it's real close, and it refers to Jesus before He's incarnate. So what does that mean? He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So Jesus was not yet born as a God-man. He's the second person of the Trinity, and He is foreknown by God. What is that? And then manifested. Well, let's keep going. I, maybe if we put several together, it'll make sense. 
Here's 1 Corinthians 8.3. So now I'm moving out of Peter, which is risky, but here we go. But if anyone loves God, he has been known by God. 1 Corinthians 8.3. Now God knows everything, knows everybody. So this is obviously a special use of the word know, which we find repeatedly in the Bible. If you love God, if anybody here tonight loves God, the reason is because God has known you. He's known you. Well, doesn't He know the unbelievers? Yes, but not that way. So we want to know, what is that? Because I think that's the kind of thing Peter has in mind. A knowing that is not awareness of all things, but something more relational, it seems. Here's, here's another one. Psalm 1-6. <clears throat> Oops, I left... I skipped. Amos 3.2. You only have I known, talking to Israel, the prophet is talking to Israel, for God. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Well, he's aware of all the families, but only you have I known. Only those who love me have I known. Only my son did I foreknow. And then Psalm 106. Chapter 1, verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, doesn't He know the way of the wicked? No, not like this. He, he knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. So those are four instances, one of them in 1 Peter and the others like it, that where no doesn't mean merely be aware of. What, what, so if this were a small class, I'd, I'd say... Paraphrase that for me. Put those four together so that there's a meaning for no or for no that works. And uh, it says, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and had a son. So that's, that's euphemism for sexual relations. So it's relational. It's it's. When I, when I know you in this sense, I favor you, I draw you in, I, 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 I acknowledge you. That's the closest I could come to an English derivative of the word know, acknowledge, acknowledge. So if this were a, a, a Senate room and I were the president of the Senate, and you were the senator from Minnesota, I could say, the senator from Minnesota is acknowledged. What would that mean? It means I, I choose you now to speak. You can speak. I favor you with a moment of... of... So I think that's, that's the idea here. So all that together... Oops, let's go back. Elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God means that election is in accord with God's favoring, God's loving, God's taking, recognizing, acknowledging for Himself. And it's for because it happened in eternity, like Jesus was foreknown and then became incarnate. 